the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, October 29th, 2021, coming to you from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. And um, you may recall it was a little over 10 months ago or so that I was reporting on the exact happenings as we knew them to to be occurring uh, from the video and everything that had uh, been uh, recorded and broadcast the day of uh, regarding the January 6th uh, Capitol attacks. And um, since then, of course, there's been an investigation ongoing because yeah, why wouldn't there be, right? Um, but it's taken just about 10 months to get some um, word of confirmation from those who participated as to how the entire thing was set up. I mean, as um, reported uh, in Rolling Stone this week, um, as the House investigation into the January 6th attack heats up, some of the planners of the pro-Trump rallies that took place uh, in Washington, D.C. have begun communicating with congressional investigators and sharing new information about what happened when the former president's supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. Now, two of these people did speak to Rolling Stone extensively in recent weeks, um, and, and they detailed explosive allegations that multiple members of Congress were intimately involved in planning both Trump's efforts to overturn his election loss and the January 6th events that turned violent. Now, this was, there was a separate confirmation by Rolling Stone uh, of a third person involved in the main January 6th rally in D.C., which uh, has also communicated with the committee. Now, this is the first report that the committee is hearing major new allegations from potential cooperating witnesses. While there have been, you know, indications before that members of Congress were involved, this is also the first account detailing their purported role and its scope. The two sources also claim they interacted with members of Trump's team, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who they describe as having had an opportunity to prevent the violence. 
Now, um, the two sources, both of whom have been granted anonymity due to the ongoing investigation. You know, we don't want uh, <laughs> we don't want them meeting the same fate as uh, certain people who didn't hang themselves. Right. Um, these people describe participating in dozens, in quotes, of planning briefings ahead of that day when Trump supporters broke into the Capitol as his election loss to President Joe Biden was being certified. The organizer says, I remember Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically. I remember talking to probably close to a dozen other members at one point or another or their staffs. Now, uh, let's be clear. We will refer to one of the sources as a rally organizer and the other as a planner. That's because Rolling Stone has confirmed that both sources were involved in organizing the main event aimed at ob objecting to the electoral certification, which took place um, at the White House ellipse originally on January 6th. Then Trump spoke at that rally, encouraged his supporters there to march to the Capitol. Some members of the audience at the ellipse at the White House began walking the mile and a half to the Capitol as Trump gave his speech. The barricades were stormed minutes before the former president concluded his remarks. Now, these two sources that Rolling Stones uh, worked with has also helped plan a series of demonstrations. They had also I've said helped plan a series of demonstrations that took place in multiple states around the country in the weeks between the election and the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Now, according to these sources, multiple people associated with the March for Trump and the Stop the Steal events uh, that took place during this period communicated with members of Congress throughout this process. Along with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the conspiratorial pro-Trump Republican from Georgia who took office earlier this year, the pair both say the members who participated in these conversations or had top staffers join in included Representative Paul Goser, Republican of Arizona, Representative Lauren Bobbert, Republican of Colorado, Representative Mo Brooks, Republican of Alabama, Representative Madison Cawthorn, Republican of North Carolina, Representative Andy Biggs, Republican of Arizona, and Representative Louis Gohmert, Republican of Texas. Now, in case you weren't uh, keeping track, yeah, that's two from the good old state of Arizona. <sighs> the organizer said, we would talk to Bobert's team, Cawthorn's team, Goser's team, like back to back to back. And uh, Goser who has been one of the most prominent defenders of the January 6th rioters since it happened, allegedly took things a step further. Both sources say he dangled the possibility of a blanket pardon in an unrelated ongoing investigation to encourage them to plan the protests. The organizer said, well, our impression was that it was a done deal, that he'd spoken to the president about it in the Oval Office in a meeting about pardons and that our names came up. They were working on submitting the paperwork and getting members of the House Freedom Caucus to sign on as a show of support. The organizer claims the pair received several assurances about the blanket pardon from Rep. Gozar. 
Now, according to the organizer, Gozard said, I was just going over the list of pardons, and we just wanted to tell you guys how much we appreciate all the hard work you've been doing. See, this is the thing. When you are so blinded by thinking what you're doing is the right thing, it exacerbates any naivete you already have. And if you are suspicious of politicians, as you should be, no matter what side they're on, you would know darn well that if a politician said, I was just going over the list of pardons, and we just wanted to tell you guys how much we appreciate all the hard work you've been doing, you would know that in no way says, and you're on that list. That's just a slippery weasel way of including two in the same sentence to try to get a, a uh, feeling over to you that isn't factual at all necessarily. Anyway, they were so wrapped up in the whole Biden stole it and Trump won it that they didn't uh, realize they were being completely lied to. The rally planner describes the pardon as being offered while encouraging the staging of protests against the election. When the organizer says they did not get involved in planning the rallies solely due to the pardon, they were upset that it ultimately did not materialize. The organizer says, oh, I, I would have done it either way, with or without the pardon. I do truly believe in this country, but to use something like that and to put that out on the table when someone is so desperate, it's really not good business. So what they're saying is, and this is what I was just saying, they believed so hard that they were somehow defending the United States against a threat to its very core because they seriously believed that Biden stole the election from Trump. They were already thinking, yeah, we should do this. But then when the words pardon and blanket pardon and all that kind of thing were, were dangled in front of them, um, they glommed onto it as being, oh, yeah. And these are the guys that we're talking to about doing this. And uh, no, it's not, quote unquote, good business. The point is, y'all got had. Rep Gosar's office did not respond to requests for comment on the story Rolling Stone uh, ran. Um, Rolling Stone separately obtained documentary evidence that both sources were in contact with Rep Gosert, Rep Bobert, uh, and others on January 6th. Now, Rolling Stone didn't describe the nature of that evidence to preserve the anonymity, I should say, of the individuals. Uh, the House Select Committee investigating the attack also has interest in Representative Gosar's office. Gosar's chief of staff, Thomas Van Flyn, was among the people who were named in the committee's sweeping requests, sweeping, quote unquote, to executive branch agencies seeking documents and communications from within the Trump administration. Both of the sources that the Rolling Stone talked to claim Van Flyn was personally involved in the conversations about the blanket pardon and other discussions about pro-Trump efforts to dispute the election. Van Flyn did not respond either to a request for comment by Rolling Stone. Go figure. Now, these specific members of Congress 
were involved in the pro-Trump activism around the election and the electoral certification on January 6th. Both Mo Brooks and Cawthorn spoke with Trump at the Ellipse at the White House on January 6th. In his speech at that event, Representative Mo Brooks, that's right, Brooks gave a speech at the Ellipse at the White House. In his speech at that event, Brooks, who was reportedly wearing body armor, by the way, declared, Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Representative Gozer, Green, and Boebert were all billed as speakers at the quote-unquote wild protest, which also took place January 6th at the Capitol. Now, Nick Dyer is um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's communications director, uh, said that she was solely involved in planning to object to the electoral recertification um, on the House floor. Spokespeople for the other members of Congress, who the sources describe as involved in the planning for protests, did not respond to requests for comment at all. They're hiding. They're hiding big time from this report. But Nick Dyer, again, Green's communication director, um, wrote in an email to Rolling Stone, um, Congress, Congresswoman Green and her staff were focused on the congressional election objection on the House floor and had nothing to do with planning of any protest. Dyer further compared Green's efforts to dispute certification of Biden's victory with similar objections certain Democrats lodged against Trump's first election. Dyer wrote, well, she objected just like Democrats who have objected to Republican presidential victories over the years, just like in 2017, when Jim McGovern, Jamie Raskin, Premier J. Paul, Barbara Lee, Sheila Jackson Lee, Raul Grijalva, and Maxine Waters tried to prevent President Trump's election from being certified. <laughs> yes, but were there you know, people protesting and storming the Capitol building in concurrence with that, Mr. Dyer. Dyer also suggested that the public is oh, far more concerned with issues occurring under President Joe Biden than they are with what happened in January. Oh, it's the old don't look over here, look over there scheme. Dyer wrote, no one cares about January 6th when gas prices are skyrocketing and grocery store shelves are empty. Unemployment is skyrocketing. Businesses are going bankrupt. Our border is being invaded. Children are forced to wear masks. Vaccine mandates are getting workers fired. And 13 members of our military are murdered by the Taliban. And Americans are left stranded in Afghanistan. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Excuse me. I had to clear my throat from all the bowl after that. <sighs> yes, you see, and again, a statement like that. Can, can you smell the terror emanating from a statement like that being made? This is the only person involved with any of these um involved with any of these Congress people who uh, have been implicated by the uh, two sources for Rolling Stone here. This is the only person who is coming out to say anything. And the only statement they can make is, oh, well, no one, no one cares about that, that they care about this. 
So even in the end, there isn't truly an objection to whether or not something went wrong that day or something was wrong, or maybe there was planning where there shouldn't have been. Oh, no, they're not saying that. They're saying, yeah, but, 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 but no one cares. No one cares. It's not that, you know, <laughs> it's not that people didn't go ahead and storm the Capitol building and die as a pro in the process. You know, it's not that the person I represent didn't have intimate and direct dealings with the people who did storm the Capitol. It's not that the person I represent, Marjorie Taylor Greene, didn't have multiple and numerous communications with these people before they went and committed these heinous and illegal acts on capital soil. Oh, no, it's, it's not that that didn't happen. It's just that, you know, no one cares. No one cares. Look the other way. Don't look at this. In another indication, members of Congress may have been involved in planning the protests against the election. Ali Alexander, who helped organize the, in quotes, wild protest, declared in a since-deleted live stream broadcast that Representatives Gosar, Brooks, and Biggs helped him formulate the strategy for that event. Alexander said at the time, I was the person who came up with the January 6th idea with Congressman Gosar, Congressman Mo Brooks, and Congressman Andy Biggs. We four schemed up on putting maximum pressure on Congress while they were voting so that who we couldn't lobby, we could change the hearts and minds of Republicans who were in that body hearing our loud roar from outside. Alexander said, stop the steal, which was one of the main groups promoting efforts to dispute Trump's loss. Um, or sorry, Alexander led Stop the Steal, I should say. In December, he organized a Stop the Steal event in Phoenix, where Representative Gosar was one of the main speakers. At that demonstration, Alexander referred to Gosar as my captain and declared one of the other heroes has been Congressman Andy Biggs. Now, Alexander, like so many, are not respond, did not respond at all to requests for comment by Rolling Stone. The rally planner, who accused Alexander of ratcheting up the potential for violence that day while taking advantage of funds from donors and others who helped finance the events, confirmed that he was in contact with those three members of Congress. The planner says of Alexander, he just couldn't help himself, but go on his uh, live stream and just talk about everything that he did and who he talked to. So he like really told on himself. Of course, he deleted it later because, you know, that always works. Ladies and gentlemen, a piece of advice to those in my audience who may someday find themselves having done something that Maybe they feel justified in having done, but they know darn well it's going to get them in trouble for, for doing. Don't post about it online. Okay, I mean, I don't know why I'm giving you advice this way, but, but just this is just life advice, okay? Tell it on yourself. Online is a bad idea because once you post it anywhere online, no matter how fast you take that thing down, there is a damn good chance that somebody A, saw it, B, copied it, three, captured it, whatever. Screen caps are a thing. 
downloading YouTube videos, despite the fact that YouTube hates it, that's a thing. Capturing live streams. Oh, that's a thing. And remember, if you did put it up to, say, YouTube servers at any point, well, sure, you can take it down, but YouTube has ways of recovering videos that you've put up there, at least for a limited time. I'm pretty sure they do because that's uh, that's one of the uh, requirements of them from the uh, Digital uh, Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, so that they can prove that things have occurred after they've been deleted. So yeah, don't do that. It's it's. I understand you might feel justified in whatever it might have been. It's just a stupid idea. And the flip side of what I'm advising is this. If you do do it, you a dumbass. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Now, while it was already clear, members of Congress played some role in the January 6th events and similar rallies that occurred in the lead up to that day. The two sources that the Rolling Stone magazine had say they can provide new details about the members' specific roles in these efforts. I mean, one was an organizer, one was a planner. The sources plan to share that information with congressional investigators right away. While both sources say their communications with the White House's January 6th committee thus far have been informal, they're expecting to testify publicly. The planner of the two says, oh, I have no problem openly testifying. This is the other reason why Rolling Stone is protecting their identities so strongly. Uh, they haven't actually given their testimony yet. So this is actually... This is one of those things where I feel I need to report this to you. I feel this is an important story. I'm a little leery about making too big a deal of this this far in advance of them actually testifying because that testimony has got to get there. It needs to be there. And Epstein didn't hang himself. <clears throat> if you see what I'm saying. Anyway, point being Rolling Stone put it out this week. So, I mean, I'm it's out there. They're, they're already, they already poked everybody who could be poked about it. So, I mean, it's, me putting it on my little program isn't going to make that big a difference, but I want to make sure you knew what was going on. Um, a representative for the committee declined to comment again. Um, in the past month, the committee has issued subpoenas to top Trump allies, governments, agencies, and activists who were involved in the planning of events and rallies that took place on that day and in the prior weeks. Multiple sources familiar with the committee's investigation had, did confirm to Rolling Stone that thus far, it seems to be heavily focused on the financing for the Ellipse rally and similar previous events. So... <clears throat> up until this point, basically, they were like, well, let's see if we can see who funded this, who who were the people involved in putting money down on this. And yeah, that's it's not a bad tack to take when you're investigating something. But uh, we need to get some uh, some of these eyewitness reports from the people who actually participated in that testimony. And especially now that they've talked to Rolling Stone, uh, they need to get that testimony in there right away. Expiration dates and all. 
um, both of the sources to Rolling Stone made clear they still believe in Trump's agenda. Huh. Uh, they also have questions about how the election loss occurred for Trump. The two sources say they do not necessarily believe there were issues with the actual vote count. However, they're concerned that Democrats gained an unfair advantage in the race due to perceived social media censorship of Trump um, and Trump's allies and the voting rules that were implemented as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. So here's the thing. Again, faced with the fact that their conspiracy theories revolving around the election cannot find factual basis in the vote counts. Vote counts don't bear it out at all, ever. Not, not a single one of them has. Not one. Not one. So with that not being something that's supported, they're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, what about Trump being banned off of Twitter? What about Trump's allies and such facing such problems at Facebook and Twitter and, and, and all this censorship? And, and, and then... Oh, yes. What about the extended voting and early voting periods and all that that were put in place because of the pandemic? And, 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 and you know what? First of all, the right wing prevalence on social media was extremely strong in the run up to the election. Don't even try to paint it backwards. It's still extremely strong right now. Heck, Facebook is right now thinking about changing its name because of how badly it handled disinformation coming from Trump and Trump allies, amongst other things. But that's one that's part of what they're embarrassed about and, and what they've been having so many so many troubles about legally is that uh Misinformation was spread so very, very thoroughly on Facebook regarding the whole thing. They're, like I said, the company's seriously looking at changing its name. And hey, if you don't believe me, feel free to Google it while you're listening to this program. So, the other, so there's that part, the social media. <laughs> social media was against us. <laughs> Whatever. That's a load of crap. Um, the other one. Oh, but, but, but people were allowed to vote. <laughs> That's your objection? Oh my gosh, we made sure that people actually got a chance to exercise their franchise in a democracy. And, and gosh darn it, that's never happened before. <laughs> when the defense you have of believing an election went wrong was that more people got to actually use their voice in the election, you done lost. Yeah, the organizer here is quoted as saying, Democrats use tactics to disrupt their political opposition in ways that were frankly completely unacceptable. Oh yes, we, we don't want those people voting. Anyway, despite their remaining affinity for Trump, and their questions about the vote, both sources say they were motivated to come forward because of their concerns about how the pro-Trump protests against the election ultimately resulted in the violent attack on the Capitol. 
Of course, with their other legal issues and the House investigation, both of these sources have clear motivation to cooperate with the investigators and turn on their former allies. And both of their accounts paint them in a decidedly favorable light compared with their former allies, of course. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I was an organizer, I was a planner, but, you know, we weren't that bad. <laughs> Uh, the organizer says, uh, well, the reason I'm talking to the committee and the reason it's so important is that despite Republicans refusing to participate, this commission's all we got as far as being able to uncover the truth about what happened at the Capitol that day. It's clear that a lot of bad actors set out to cause chaos. They made us all look like crap. He didn't say crap. I'm saying crap. It's the radio. And Trump, they admit, was one of those bad actors. A representative for Trump did not respond to a request for comment. So notice, they said that they, they still believe in Trump's agenda. And they believe there were issues with the election. But they know that Trump was one of the participants. And they're saying it right here. Trump was one of the participants in planning these attacks. Now, of course, a representative for Donald Trump did not respond to a request for comment to Rolling Stone. <laughs> the organizer said, the breaking point for me on January 6th was when Trump starts talking about walking to the Capitol. I was like, oh, let's get the F out of here. The planner said, I, I do feel kind of abandoned by Trump. I'm actually pretty upset about it and him. The organizer offers even more succinct assessment when asked what they would say to Trump. I, for broadcast purposes, will sum it up in the popular abbreviation WTF. You know, what the Friday. The two potential witnesses plan to present the committee allegations about how these demonstrations were funded and to detail communications between organizers in the White House. According to both sources, members of Trump's administration and former members of his campaign team were involved in the planning. Both describe uh, Katrina Pearson, who worked for Trump's campaign in 2016 and 2020 as a key liaison between the organizers of the protests against the election and the White House. The organizers said, oh, Katrina was like our go-to girl. She was like our primary advocate. Now, Katrina Pearson spoke at the White House rally at the Ellipse on January 6th. Like the others, she did not respond to Rolling Stone's requests for comment. Both sources also described Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as someone who played a major role in the conversations surrounding the protests on January 6th, among other things. They both say concerns were raised to Meadows about Alexander's protest at the Capitol and the potential it could spark violence. Mark Meadows was subpoenaed by the committee last month as part of a group of four people with close ties to the former president who were working in or had communications with the White House on or in the days leading up to the January 6th insurrection. The organizer said Meadows was 100% made aware of what was going on. He's also like a regular figure in these really tiny groups of national organizers. A separate third source who has also communicated with the committee and was involved in the Ellipse rally says 
Kylie Creamer, one of the key organizers at the event, boasted that she was going to meet with Meadows at the White House ahead of the rally. The committee has been provided with that information. Creamer, like the others, did not respond to Rolling Stone when they requested a comment. Now, both the organizer and the planner say Alexander initially agreed he would not hold his wild protest at the Capitol and that the ellipse would be the only major demonstration. When Alexander seemed to be ignoring that arrangement, both the people who are talking to Rolling Stone claimed they had worries and they brought them to Meadows. The organizer says of Alexander's allies, despite making a deal, they plowed forward with their own thing at the Capitol on January 6th anyway. We ended up escalating that to everybody we could, including Meadows. See, now, here's where these two are trying to be very clear, trying to make it clear, at least, whether or not this is true. That, oh, we didn't have anything to do with that. That, that. that was insurrection. No, that was these guys over here. We, 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 had, we had said, no, no, just keep it at the White House. But, but boy, this guy, this Alexander is bad news. He, he's the one who did it. And, you know, that might be what happened. But this is the tech they're taking so that they can be seen in a light where they might be, you know, um, able to be given leniency and clemency for turning on their movement. Now, a representative, of course, for Meadows also did not respond to Rolling Stone when they requested comment. Along with making plans for January 6th, according to these sources, members of Congress who were involved solicited supposed proof of election fraud from them. Challenging electoral certification requires the support of a member of the Senate, while more than 100 Republican members of the House ultimately objected to the Electoral College count that formalized Trump's loss, only a handful of senators backed the effort. According to the sources, the members of Congress and their staff advised them to hold rallies in specific states. The organizer says locations were chosen to put pressure on key senators that were considered to be persuadable. The organizer says, we also had been coordinating with some of our congressional contacts on like what would be presented after the individual objections. And our expectation was that that was the day the storm was going to arrive. It was supposed to be the best evidence that they'd been secretly gathering. Everyone was going to stay at the ellipse throughout the congressional thing. So heading into January 6th, both sources say the plan they discussed with other organizers, Trump allies, and members of Congress was a rally that would solely take place at the ellipse at the White House, where speakers, including former President Trump, would present evidence, in quotes, about issues with the election. This demonstration would take place in conjunction with objections that were being made by Trump allies during the certification on the House floor that day. The organizer says... It was in a variety of calls, some with Gosar and Gosar's team, some with Major, uh, sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her team and Mo Brooks. But the planner insists the capital was never in play. A senior staffer for a Republican member of Congress who was also granted anonymity to discuss the ongoing investigation similarly says they believed events would only involve supporting objections on the House floor. The staffer says their member was engaged in planning that was specifically and fully above board. 
The senior Republican staffer said, a whole host of people let this go a totally different way. They screwed it up for a lot of people who were planning to present evidence on the House floor. We were really upset at everything that happened. Please note, I have uh, paraphrased a couple of uh, words there to make them FCC compatible. The two sources claim there were early concerns about Alexander's event at the Capitol. They had seen him with members of the paramilitary groups, the First Amendment uh, Praetorian, 1AP, and the Oath Keepers in his entourage at prior pro-Trump rallies. Alexander was filmed with a reputed member of 1AP at his side at a November Stop the Steal event that took place in Georgia. The two sources also claim to have been concerned about drawing people to the area directly adjacent to the Capitol on January 6th, given the anger among Trump supporters about the electoral certification that was underway that day. The planner said they knew they weren't there to sing Kumbaya and like put up a peace sign. These frickin' people were angry. And yes, frickin' is a quote. So... Again, I personally believe that the testimony of these two needs to be put in front of the committee as soon as possible. Rolling Stone has it out there. Um, and as you can tell by how many people refuse to comment, they have shaken every hornet's nest possible on Capitol Hill to try to get a response from the people who were uh, directly implicated by these two uh, and their testimony to Rolling Stone. So while they're being held anonymous by Rolling Stone and hopefully protected by that, uh, yeah, their testimony needs to be gotten out there quick for their good and frankly, for the good of our democracy. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media, airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central, podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Lots of more. Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, it's no secret that hospitals and just healthcare in general in America is a tremendous ripoff. I mean, when you compare it internationally with these exact same procedures performed by the exactly same qualified kind of physicians, uh, we, we always spend far, far too much to get the same or sometimes worse results and outcomes. Now, it's not going to be the surprise of anybody who listens to me regularly to find out that, of course, this is all by design, that we have um, we have uh, ho- huge uh, corporate and uh, such organizations that drive up uh, the costs of medicine on purpose for a profit, of course. Um, one such group is the American College of Emergency Physicians. Now, that sounds like a nice name, right? The American College of Emergency Physicians. You'd, you'd think that its roughly 400-member council uh, would be one that would actually be, you know, uh, helpful in making sure that ER practices were efficient and, you know, not at all gouging consumers, at least with a name like that. <laughs> yeah. See, here's the problem. The... American College of Emergency Physicians was founded in the late 60s, all right? And originally, it was exactly what I said. It was exactly an organization designed to help make sure that emergency room procedures and policies um, were being best met by what was being passed legally so that, you know, when they pass a law regarding healthcare. Um, the law didn't somehow forget that, hey, you know, ERs need an exception here from this because of our uh, contingent nature, because, you know, basically something can come in that we will have no clue about until it hits us. We can't possibly be held for this or that or that kind of thing. You know, and, and let's be let's be fair. Emergency rooms are a different end of medicine than your casual everyday. Okay, we can plan for it. We can make sure all the resources we need are right there um, because we know that we're doing an operation in a month or, you know, or the kind of thing where it's like you're just going to see your doctor because you're feeling a little under the weather. No, ERs are uh, they have to be prepared for just about darn near anything because. You could come in from an automobile crash. Uh, you could be facing a life-threatening illness that suddenly caught your attention. There could be any number of things that, you know, is wrong with you. So, yeah, ERs sometimes need a little special provision in medical laws that come out because, you know, they have completely different conditions. So it made sense. It made sense back in the late 60s for there to be something like the American College of Emergency Physicians, you know, to be out there watching out for the needs of emergency rooms. Okay, cool. That makes sense, right? However, and this is this is the real problem. Um, around 1980, they got taken over by Leonard Riggs. Now, Mister Riggs, <clears throat> he had a, he did immediately a couple things with them by 1982. In other words, just two years after he got there. uh, ACEP, the American College of Emergency Professionals, had decided, you know what, we're going to drop our founding ethical guidelines. Who needs ethics? We're here to make sure that we don't get screwed. We don't need to be ethical about it. We can fight with however we want to (laughs) fight. Great. Yeah. yeah, Who needs ethics, right? Especially in medicine, right? Ha ha. Jeez. 
Anyway, one of the things that got dropped was its prohibition on kickbacks or, you know, fee splitting, which is an illegal practice of referring a patient for treatment in exchange for a cut of the fees. You can imagine why this would be illegal, of course, right? You know, you don't want to have your doctor um, predisposed to sending you to someone just because they're going to be made richer by sending you there. You want your doctor to be referring you somewhere because it's best for your health. Anyway, one of the things that happened early on was in 1986, there was a law that that <laughs> I'm not going to give you the full name because it's a it's a long one, but the uh, initials are E M T A L A. In other words, MTALA. Now, MTALA in 1986 required hospitals to keep emergency rooms staffed with doctors who would be willing to treat patients even if that patient had no ability to pay. Right? I mean, that sounds great. That's essentially emergency socialized medicine, which. Uh, I want, I think you want, I think, I think most, we want something way better than just emergency as well. But the point being is that this is, sounds like a great thing, except, except. So they did that. They said, all right, if you have an emergency room, you must, must staff it with doctors who are willing to take patients, even if that patient doesn't have a means to pay, Right. Yeah. Here's the thing. The reason why the ACEP didn't object and say, hey, hang on, which you'd think, right? I mean, now they're being hounded up by this guy who got rid of their ethics. Well, that's because Leonard Riggs and the uh, the new redesigned American College of Emergency Physicians had an idea in mind. Um, basically, they boasted that, hey, private companies outside of the hospitals could staff ERs around the clock more cheaply than the hospitals themselves could do on their own. So by the early 90s, these business moves had allowed it to score a major investment from healthcare-focused private equity firms, right? Okay. So basically what happens is, is that ERs from that point on got staffed by um basically outsourced companies that were saying that, yeah, we'll take the hit. You hospitals don't have to worry about the fact that you've got patients in that can't necessarily pay. We'll do that for you. So how do they manage it? Well, here's the thing. When you bill for um, patient, uh, when you bill for patient stuff in a hospital setting, there are a couple different levels of rates you can bill for. If you're seen by a physician's assistant or a nurse for something, but not a doctor, well, the things you're being billed for will cost less and should cost less. You've been just seen by an emergency, uh, an emergency room nurse or physician's assistant, not an actual doctor, right? So, what they decided they would do, however, in order to make the money back off of the fact that they had to accept people who couldn't pay, is they had physicians begin signing on everybody's work. So, in other words, you go in, 
you see a physician's assistant, a nurse helps you out, fine, and you manage to get treated just fine between the two of them. They can put your arm in a cast. Everything's good. No problem. You get an x-ray, all good. None of that the doctor actually gets to see or take part in. For one thing, they're busy. But for another thing, there's probably only one actual PhD, or I'm sorry, MD, pardon me, one actual doctor in the ER at the time. Everyone else are these little assistants. Then at the end of the day, the doctor signs off on everything. And because the doctor signs off on it, it gets billed as the doctor having done it. So what they would otherwise have been making, you know, let's say the discount rate on from a physician's assistant or a nurse, suddenly they're able to charge the insurance companies and everybody else, doctor level rates for everything. Now, if this sounds fraudulent to you, it kind of is. And um, more than kind of, frankly, one of the things is, is that the more this has happened, the more younger emergency room physicians or well, more younger, younger medical students that, that graduate, right? And they're graduating with like $200,000 in debt often on average. And, and they want to keep their medical licenses, right? It's, it's the most valuable thing they own. But the thing is, is that they're, they're really anxious. Um, uh, there's a, a Facebook group for them that is full of anxious testimonials of doctors who fear losing their licenses over something in the daily mountain of paperwork of which they're required to sign off on. Um, related to the endless string of patients treated by a nurse or physician assistant under their, you know, quote unquote, supervision. Now, here's here's the tricky part. Just to make things seem like they were still on the up and up, the American College of Emergency Physicians went and last year advised their members, oh, you can't be forced to sign off on the charts of patients if you have never actually seen them. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you you can't be forced to. But then the place that has you working the emergency room at that hospital is also not forced to give you more hours. In fact, they can just keep your butt at home if you're not willing to play ball and sign on to everything so they can make their money. Right? Yeah. So basically, on the one hand, the physicians know that signing off on things they've never seen is fraudulent and they don't want to lose their licenses. On the other hand, they need the money. They've got these huge, huge student loans, $200,000, uh, 200, the actual average is exactly 207,000. Okay. Now, if no one knows exactly what they've signed off on, then they're relatively safe. It would, somebody would have to do a lawsuit and do and, and really dig in in order to find things right now like that, right? Uh, to find every single time it's happening, et cetera. Well, here's the thing. Um, recently, and this is why I'm talking about this in specific to this time, not you know last week or the week before. Um, the American College of Emergency Physicians circulated a document to its... Um, 400 member council in advance of its annual conference this month, actually this week in Boston. Um, and they noted that a temple university medical school professor named Robert Nac McNamara, 
who's been working for decades to bring ER doctors into opposition of the corporate practice of medicine, had proposed a resolution that would essentially force all ER staffing companies that wanted to do business with the um, American College of Emergency Professionals to periodically furnish their physicians with exact data on the services and procedures the company had billed under their license numbers. So they were about to require, or at least under the proposal by uh, McNamara, they're going to require that doctors have their medical license numbers attached to every single thing that they've ever ever billed and have that data be made essentially public by anybody who would want to do business with the American Council of Emergency Physicians. Now, American College of Emergency Physicians, as you can imagine, the ACEP was immediately like, oh, no, no, we can't have that. Now, the good news is things are turning around. I mean, it's like turning around the Titanic, right? We, we get that. It's, it's, it's a long thing. But um, there is a movement now called Take Medicine Back, right? Um, and uh, McNamara is part of it, of course. And on uh, Tuesday, uh, the Take, Back, Take Medicine Back movement learned of an encouraging development. Uh, Abby Smiley, an ER doctor who had criticized private equity in the past, and appeared to support the overall mission of the reformers, won a tight race to be the next president of the Emergency Medicine Residents Association, an ACEP affiliate that acts as a membership gateway to the flagship organization. Basically, those who want this kind of thing to stop, those who want to end the profiteering, the fraudulent profiteering of the medicine and the services we have to use, are winning on getting into and perhaps retaking the American College of Emergency Professionals. Thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. And remember, if you want to see the world for how it is, take a deep breath, close your eyes, find that center within yourself. Remember what matters to you, then you'll be ready. And to see the world for how it actually is, all you'll have to do at that point is simply 